morning, Crosspoint, Peachtree City, along with those of you who may be joining in with us this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this video stream. If we haven't met, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church, the guy who most weeks gets the privilege of opening up the scriptures as we come together. Speaking of the scriptures, this morning marks the relaunch of our sermon series through the book of 2 Corinthians, a series that we put on pause, as many of you know, a couple months ago in order to address some biblical themes and issues pertinent to this strange historical moment in which we all find ourselves. A couple of things motivating the philosophy of preaching the past couple of months, for those of you who may have been wondering. So early on in this pandemic, late March, let's say, I, I became aware of a verse of scripture that is significant to me as a pastor, a verse that Jesus actually uh, alludes to uh, in his feeding of the 5,000 as he looks out on this crowd and we're told that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 34, verse four, which says, the weak you have not strengthened. This is Ezekiel, uh, the prophet, speaking about the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Um, one of the things that ran through my mind very early on in this whole strange experience was the question of, you know, who is expressing a weakness, a struggle, a difficulty with all of this. And that tended to be those who were battling anxiety, those who were crippled by fear, those who were struggling to trust in the sovereignty of God in the midst of, of uncertainty, those who were struggling to joyfully uh, enjoy God's gifts and express gratitude for the good things in the midst of all of this. And so the, that, that helped to then inform for the better part of, I believe, nine weeks, some of those sermons that you were on the receiving end of speaking to those very things. Because I wanted to be able to stand before the Lord someday and say, Lord, I really tried to strengthen the weak in the midst of this weird experience. I really tried to bind up the injured. I really attempted to not lead, not shepherd with a force or a harshness, but rather with the same kind of compassion that Jesus brought to that hillside. The second, and this would... Um, be one that you would appreciate if you nerd out on philosophy and Christian thought like me. This is kind of Pascal's wager running through my mind in the midst of all of this. I've said it a couple of times that I could be terribly wrong in my assessment of what's going on in the world right now. And so the question ran through my mind, how would I rather be wrong? If, if this is one of those once in a century moments that we all look back on in U.S. history, world history, church history, and we say that was monumental. And I didn't pause from the Second Corinthians series to speak into any of that in that unique moment in human history. Would I have regretted it? And my answer to that question is, yeah, I think I would have. That's not a knock on anyone who continued through the sermon series that they were in without skipping so much as a beat. I don't have to stand before the Lord for those flocks. I have to stand before the Lord for my responsibility of leading and shepherding this flock. And so as I sat with that question, my answer was, I'm not sure I'd feel good about that. On the flip side, if we look back on this and say, you know what, I'm, I'm not sure that was a once in a, a century experience for us, which is not to discredit the loss, the pain, the anguish in the midst of all of this at all, but the question 
would I have regretted stopping for a couple of months to speak to the hearts of God's people in the midst of how they were perceiving all of this and experiencing all of this in the midst of it all, putting this series on hold for a couple of months to do that? And my answer to that question was, I don't, I wouldn't regret that at all, I don't think. So that, that's a little bit of the heart behind where we've gone the, the last couple of months. Having said that, I'm incredibly excited to dive back into this book of the Bible, a book that's forever changed my own life. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be in verse 14. We'll work our way through chapter 7, verse 1, before all said and done this morning. If you don't have a Bible, as I've said on numerous occasions over the past couple months, please go to our church website, go to the leadership page, look up someone on staff, email us and, and let us know that you don't possess a Bible and we will get one shipped to you in a matter of days so that you can have a copy of the scriptures to sit with on your own time and in moments like these. Let me go ahead and pray so that we can cover our ground this morning and we'll get after it. Father in heaven, we come to you as needy children this morning, desperate for your wisdom, desperate for your grace. Holy Spirit, would you remind us of who you are and what you do? Would you do what you do in our hearts even now in these moments to come as we sit with your word? Awaken our hearts to the beauty and wonder of the gospel yet again for those of us who are in Christ. Do that one and same work for the very first time for those who are not yet followers of Jesus. God, I pray that your kindness would lead us to repentance for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So just to make sure we're all caught up to speed on where we are in the storyline of the Corinthian church as we dive into this morning, this is not gonna be one of those typical previously on sort of backtrackings and, and uh, explanations of where we've come because we're halfway through this book right now. To do that would be to use up the entirety of our time together this morning, looking back to previous episodes. But but just to attempt in a concise way to get after some of that, Corinth, uh, many of you may recall, is the city where Paul set up shop right next door to the Jewish synagogue and proceeded to lead the head rabbi and his entire family to Jesus. It's the city where Paul spent roughly two years evangelizing unbelievers and discipling Christians, a church that undoubtedly, as many of us know, had its fair share of issues, Look no further than the content of the prequel, 1 Corinthians. As we dive into this morning's passage, roughly a year's gone by since Paul's penning of that very letter, a year in which many have come to question Paul's credibility as an apostle on the basis of his many sufferings, so that part of the purpose of Paul's writing is to address the naysayers in defense of his apostolic authority as a minister of the gospel. As evidenced throughout this letter, Paul's strategy is not to diminish his suffering. It's not to minimize his weakness. His strategy, rather, is to declare just how drastic his suffering truly is, to boast of his weaknesses so that the power of Jesus might rest upon him, so that God and God alone might get the glory. A God who, looking back on previous parts of this letter, promises to transform his people by the power of his indwelling spirit. A God who promises an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison to be revealed in and to those of us who are in Christ. A God who promises to someday raise his people with Jesus and bring them into his presence. 
Paul's zealous ambition, you see it over and over again throughout the scriptures, was to please this God, hemmed in by the love of Christ. Christ's affection for him being the very banks of that river, shaping the direction of his thoughts, shaping the direction of his emotions, shaping the direction of his decisions. Paul's writing to many who have been hemmed in by something else, that something else narrowing their hearts, filling them with with the muddied waters of fear and suspicion, distrust and doubt. Paul knows that, that the love of Christ has the power to widen the banks and to purify the waters that run within. And so he calls them to know the joy of being hemmed in by the love of Jesus, a love expressed in his laying down his life for undeserving sinners, which is why Paul continues as we pick back up this letter, chapter six, verse 14, with these words. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. A yoke is uh, what was placed upon an animal and hitching it to a plow historically. So that what Paul has in mind here is this image of two animals unsuited to be bound together. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10 says, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now, most of us here in South Metro Atlanta, we don't live amidst an agrarian backdrop. If if you have land, you're probably uh, the exception to to the rule around here. But It doesn't take much imagination to envision what it might look like to hitch an ox and a donkey to the same plow. The two animals have different heights. They have different weights. They possess different levels of strength. They walk at different paces. So that the very yoke meant to capitalize on the strength of the animals, that yoke would actually create struggles for both as they plowed the field to a different cadence, you might say perhaps even leading to significant injury for for either or both animals. Many have drawn from this verse the the primary application that a Christian should not marry an unbeliever. Maybe you've heard that, or perhaps not entering into other kinds of intimate contractual relationships with unbelievers, which is certainly worthy of, of our consideration as the Bible does speak to some of those things elsewhere in Scripture. Those challenges... You can imagine associated with that agrarian imagery of an ox and and a donkey hitched to the same plow, those challenges very much real in in the most intimate of interpersonal relationships like marriage. But taken in context, these words of the Apostle Paul more explicitly have to do with being yoked together with unbelievers in the church. Keeping in mind the context of this letter, if you remember a couple months back, Paul's driving at the danger of linking arms with those false teachers rejecting his apostolic ministry and authority. It's a warning not to hitch one's wagon to those in the church who stand opposed to the gospel. Those who, chapter 5, verse 12, boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Those who, chapter four, verse two, practice cunning or tamper with God's word. Those who distort or water down the gospel. Those who preach a different gospel. Those who repudiate the doctrines of reconciliation and penal substitutionary atonement, which Paul has gone to great lengths in this letter to expound. Those who proclaim a message of health and wealth and who question the faith of God's suffering servants like the apostle Paul. 
There's a message for, for us in this, I think, particularly in our, our over-churched, under-gospel cultural context amidst a sea of nominal Christians who might not explicitly talk and act the way Paul's opponents did in Corinth, but who nonetheless reject in more subtle ways the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be crystal clear, Paul's not arguing for an abandonment of our relationship with unbelievers, without which evangelism would be impossible, right? Going back to the prequel, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since you would then need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do, Paul says, with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. I mean, Paul clearly expects some level of interaction with, with those in our circles of missional influence. He's not calling us to abandon our mission field, nor is he calling us to ban unbelievers from our assembly. In fact, Paul expects unbelievers to be in the midst of the gathered church on the basis of what he says in 1 Corinthians 14. He's very explicit there. He's calling us not to hitch ourselves to the same plow as those who bear the name of brother or sister, yet repudiate the message and or ministry of the gospel. Like those false teachers in Corinth who were rejecting Paul's gospel message and ministry. In addition, it's highly likely that Paul has a second group of individuals in mind here in expressing this idea of not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. Some in the church of Corinth had engaged in some of the pagan cultic temple rituals and practices, which Paul also addresses in 1 Corinthians, uh, particularly chapters six, chapters eight through 10 as well, that we're, we're not to be so intertwined relationally with unbelievers outside the church that our faithfulness to Jesus is jeopardized. For those in Corinth, those kind of relationships associated with paganism and idol worship. Paul goes on to, to give the why by such a command, declaring in, in five different ways the contrasting beauty of what it means to be a new covenant believer as opposed to life outside of Christ. Look what he goes on to say in verse 14. He, he asks, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? That we know that if you've been around this church long enough, you know the sinless Jesus became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Chapter five, verse 21. Jesus' record of perfect obedience reckoned to us, now able to walk in righteousness by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit who writes God's will on the hearts of his people. Paul goes on to ask, or what fellowship has light with darkness? We are the light of the world. God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Chapter four, verse six. 
Paul asks in verse 15, what accord has Christ with Belial? The word Belial was used by the Jews in, in Paul's day to refer to Satan, derived from a Hebrew term that means worthless, vile, or wicked. Satan is referred to in scripture as the accuser, Zechariah 3, verse one. The tempter, Matthew chapter four, verse three. The deceiver, Revelation chapter 12, verse nine. Here Paul reminds us of the worthlessness of the devil as opposed to the supreme worth of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the treasure hidden in a field. He's the pearl of great price. We as Christians possess the most valuable treasure in all of the universe. He goes on, Paul does, to ask, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? We're not left in the hopelessness of our unbelief as Christians, but rather we've been given eyes to see and trust our worthy triune God, that we are those who walk by faith, We believe, we're empowered to fight the good fight with the weapons and strength that God supplies. He goes on in verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? The temple associated in scripture with the very dwelling place of God, a place of purity, a place of consecration, which Paul goes on shockingly to identify with you and with me. He says, for we are the temple of the living God. Paul talks like this elsewhere. This is not the only place in scripture he uses this language. We see it in uh, his previous writings again to the church in Corinth. He says, 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He says in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 and 20, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you recall, the the Old Testament place of worship was divided into two major sections, the holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. The holy place is where the, pre, the priests would perform their daily duties, making sure that the light continued to burn to remind God's people of his presence, where the fresh bread was always put on the table to remind God's people of his provision, where daily sacrifices were made in the morning and evening, as well as sacrifices received by people who would bring them throughout the day constantly. The most holy place, in contrast, was entered only once a year and only by the high priest on the Day of Atonement when he would go in and offer incense and sprinkle the blood of sacrificial animals, not only for the sins of the people, but for his own sins as well. When Jesus died on the cross, we see the imagery in the gospel accounts. The veil separating the holy place from the most holy place was torn, declaring intimate access to the living God through Jesus Christ. Here's the amazing thing about this morning's passage. The word that Paul uses for temple, it's not the word associated with the broad temple building but rather the word associated with the most holy place, the holy of holies. That the great blessing of the new covenant established in Jesus' blood is that by God's spirit, you and I are the dwelling place of the living God. 
the living God, Paul says, in contrast to the dead idols of the pagan world. Like Paul's not only declaring the wonder of who we are in Jesus, but at the same time, he's declaring the folly of idolatry. One of the most famous passages on the foolishness of idols is found in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 14 through 17. Isaiah says this, the carpenter cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it, the very tree that he himself planted. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. And he also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. You see the foolishness of that kind of thinking. And yet the reality is that that that's not so far in the rearview mirror of human history, church history. We experience those things in our very own lives, those things that we turn to that are created and, and run to and trust in and look to for our own deliverance. Paul says, may it not be so for the Christian. Hey, our God is alive and we are his temple. Paul goes on to say, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Here Paul begins stringing together six Old Testament quotations in order to drive home the implications of what it means to be the new covenant people of God. Beginning with the covenant promises of God to dwell among his people and to be their God. Covenant promises, as we know, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who has brought us into an intimate relationship with the living God. In light of such glorious promises secured for us in him, verse 17, therefore, go out from their midst and be separated from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. These are words drawn from Isaiah chapter 52, in the context of the Jewish exiles having been permitted to return home from Babylon, God commanded them in that moment to bring no unclean thing associated with idol worship on the journey to live in accordance with their newfound freedom from exile. Likewise, the saints in Corinth had been freed from bondage to Satan, to sin, no longer blinded from seeing the light of the gospel, chapter four, verse four having been called out of such darkness and brought into a covenant relationship with God through Christ, Paul calls them to live in accordance with this newfound identity. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Chapter five, verse 17. Paul's not driving it at some sort of external compliance with the law, make no mistake, but rather that which is in accord with the transforming power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Going back to that Sermon on the Mount series that feels like it was ages ago at this point, right? A kingdom righteousness that works from the inside out, exposing our our heart level intentions, our heart level motivations, so that we might 
walk in the fullness of God's grace and power more deeply fulfilling his kingdom ethic of love. If I could summarize, Paul is simply calling us to live in accordance with who we've been declared to be in Jesus. To use his own language in this morning's passage, you've been reckoned righteous in Jesus Christ. You're the light of the world. You're a new creation in Christ. You're a believer. You're the temple of the living God. Live in accordance with who you are as God's new covenant people, controlled by the love of Christ who died for us, that we might, as Paul says in chapter five, verses 14 and 15, no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. He goes on at the end of verse 17. Then I will welcome you. This is God speaking. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That as Christians, we we know God as father now, right? We talk of ourselves in the present using the language of adoption in Christ, which is why we have verses like Galatians 4, 7. You are no longer a slave, but a son. Or Romans 8, 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We are, not will be. But what Paul's talking about here has to do more so with the final ingathering of God's people, the consummation of God's saving work in welcoming sons and daughters into his eternal presence. In other words, The the promise here of being welcomed and received as children of God, it's in direct correlation to the commands in the preceding verses, which might cause some to ask the question, and it's a fair question, are, are you implying that salvation is by works? To which I would respond with a hearty, by no means, to use the language of the Apostle Paul, The commands in verse 17 are preceded by the promises of verse 16, which is why the commands in verse 17 begin with, therefore, that in light of the covenant relationship we have with God by grace through faith in Christ, verse 16, we're called to live in covenant obedience to this glorious God who's reconciled us to himself, verse 17. And in doing so, we give evidence that he has in fact written his will on our hearts by his spirit, that we are in fact beneficiaries of the blessings associated with the new covenant established in Jesus's blood. Scott Hafman in his commentary on this morning's passage says, Paul did not say obey the command in order to become God's people. He said, obey the command because you are God's people. That is why all obedience, he says, is an expression of the same grace and power that saved his people to begin with. We talked about this in the series we did a few years back on the fruit of the Spirit, that justification comes not by character cultivation, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ alone. That if you're not a Christian, I invite you to put your trust not in yourself, but in Jesus the one who lived the sinless life that you and I could never live, the one who died the sinner's death that you and I deserve to die. As Peter says in Acts chapter four, verse 12, and there is no uh, salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
And yet, where a root of faith exists, the fruit of cultivated character will too exist. From every gospel root, justification, comes gospel fruit, sanctification. And that progression, Paul says here, coming back to verses 17 and 18, will ultimately end in glorification, the unbreakable chain of God's saving work. Then I will welcome you, God says, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Which leads Paul to say, as we close out this morning's passage, chapter seven, verse one, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Since we have these promises, beloved, the promise of being welcomed by God, the promise of being received as children of God, if these promises are true, if these promises are real, then there's, there's really only one appropriate response, right? Let us fight the good fight of faith. Let us give evidence of the Spirit's transforming work in our lives, in turning from sin and unbelief, in walking in daily repentance by God's grace, The very first of Martin Luther's 95 theses was this. Luther said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Not not so that we might merit God's love, but rather flowing from the love that God already has for us in Jesus Christ. He used Paul's own language, controlled by the love of Christ knowing that the final reception into God's eternal kingdom, into God's fatherly arms awaits us. We're we're meant to ask ourselves this morning, what associations, if any, do I have that tempt me to forsake Jesus? Which again, it's not an exhortation to forsake the mission to which we've been called. To again, quote Scott Haifman, he says, our present passage is not a call to create a Christian ghetto, or as we call it in the American South, a holy huddle, but a summons, he says, to purify the church community, the Christian community. Paul does not have in view, he says, the life of the church in the world, but the life of the world in the church. To use the language of another commentator, Paul's words in this passage are an iron shot in the arm of the anemic church, which honestly, just might feel like a double dose for for many of us. The first being the iron shot of a pandemic, right? Many of us have strangely been given an opportunity to see our spiritual anemia in a way that perhaps we may not have seen otherwise had we not found ourselves in this crazy reality that we're all in. But it requires something that many of us are not very comfortable with. It requires that we Look first in the mirror. Paul says, let us cleanse ourselves. Coming back to last week, so very easy to see all that's wrong outside of ourselves when the greatest of our problems lies within. We possess some of the most glorious promises in all of the universe. We see them right here in this morning's passage, purchased for us by Jesus Christ himself. May the love of Christ control us widening the banks of our hearts and purifying the waters that run within. Yes, the greatest of our problems lies within, but the greatest of our hopes does as well, the indwelling spirit of the living 
God. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship in a couple of ways. We'll continue to worship through song together. I invite you to sing with us from wherever you are to allow these words to wash over you. During that time, we're, we're not gonna receive communion as we're scattered in this season, but I do invite you in the same way that you would prepare your heart before you were to come and receive the bread and the cup, that you would just pause for a moment and remember who Jesus is, what he's done for you, all of those promises purchased for you that because Christ lived and died and rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he was able to send the Holy Spirit to indwell his people. We have the hope of the third person of the Godhead indwelling. Let that rest on you and cause you to say, thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you've done for me.